Okay, first reading is from 2 Timothy, <laughs> chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do you doubt, doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling, and he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that 
repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty Father, um, it's a bold thing that we do uh, whenever we pray, whenever we uh, uh, speak to you. Um, it's, um, it's, either, it's, either the most, it's either the most glorious privilege imaginable, uh, or it's just folly. But we believe that you have drawn near. You've come. You've chased us down. One of the ways you chased us down is, is through the scriptures, the gift of the Bible. Uh, will you grant us, will you address in every one of us those areas where we're kind of, uh, where we struggle with the Bible, where we struggle with listening to you, where we struggle with the whole concept or the particulars or whatever it is. Um, we all struggle in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, will you address the particular ways that we struggle and will you make us a people who can hear your voice and just recognize your voice? Um, you said that your, your people recognize the voice of Jesus. So, so grant us to recognize his voice and nobody else's. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And um, it's helpful if you turn back to page 10. We're continuing in um, Paul's second letter to Timothy. We're looking at the second paragraph there. We looked at the first paragraph last week. And in particular, we're going to be looking um, really at the second half of the second uh, paragraph. We're going to talk about the Bible. And uh, so I want to start with a question. Um, here it is. What is it that comes to your mind when you think about the Bible, when you think about Scripture? Um, and my guess is that as soon as we start talking about the Bible, there's going to be a bunch of different reactions. There's going to be some of us who, um, who just, you love the Bible. You just love the Bible. You're Bible lovers. And, um, and so as soon as you start talking about the Bible, it, it just, things click, and you, you just really uh, enjoy it. My guess, though, is that for a lot of us, we've got um, at least one or two other responses. There's going to be a lot of us who are cautious about the Bible. Are you cautious about the Bible a little bit. And there's different kinds of caution. There's skepticism. There's cynicism. There's just, man, I maybe have a complicated history with the Bible. People have, um, you've seen a lot of hypocrisy, perhaps. Uh, maybe there's, maybe people have uh, mistreated you and actually invoked the Bible in their mistreatment. Um, tragically, that happens quite a lot. Uh, and maybe it's just as simple as you just don't see why everybody's so excited about a really old book. Um, so you might be cautious. And then there might be a third category of us who are just kind of, eh, whatever, just kind of lukewarm. Um, you don't love the Bible, uh, you don't hate the Bible, you're not cautious about it, you're just kind of like, meh. Um, and um, that third group, I, I'm not exactly sure what to say to you, so, you know, you, can, you might have already checked out, I don't know. I hope you won't. And if you're cautious, um, can I just encourage, can, can, bring your caution. I'm not asking you to throw it out. Bring it. But we're going to talk about the Bible, and I'm going to try to point out from this text why it is that Christians just love the Bible. 
why does, or at least even when we struggle with it, we value it. Um, and, and here's the basic reason. Um, what I want to try to show you is that God gives us the Bible in order to give us himself. Now, in order to show you that, I want to ask two questions. What is the aim of the Bible, of Scripture? What's the overall aim? What's it trying to do? Number one. Number two, where's its power? How does it get that done? What's the aim? Where does it, how, how does it get it done? What's the power behind it? Okay, first of all, what is the aim of the Bible? Um, take a look at the reading and look almost at the end at verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul writing to uh, somebody he's mentored, a guy called Timothy, who's a pastor in a church uh, in modern-day Turkey. And the Apostle Paul writes this, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, pause there. Let me um, just set the context uh, a little bit. Um, Timothy uh, had followed the Apostle Paul. So Timothy is the one receiving this letter. Paul's the one writing the letter. Timothy had followed uh, the Apostle Paul for years. Um, we know a little bit about Timothy's family. Timothy's mother and grandmother had uh, been devoted um, followers of Jesus. Um, Timothy's father was not. And it appears that the Apostle Paul sort of took over a role in Timothy's life a little bit like a father. And so everything that Timothy, who's the pastor of this church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, everything Timothy knows about Jesus, he's received from Paul. But now, Paul, his mentor, his spiritual father, Paul is in Rome, long way away, and uh, Paul is in prison, and Paul, uh, it looks like he's going to die, and it ends up he does. He, he dies shortly out of, after this because uh, he gets his head chopped off by Nero. Now, Timothy knows it's probably the end for Paul. Consider for a second, put yourself in Timothy's shoes, consider for a second how frightening, how grief, in, how, how grievous it would have been for Timothy in this moment to know that he's going to lose his spiritual father. And there's even a bigger dynamic than that because Timothy was part of the first generation of Christians who had never actually met Jesus themselves. Uh, so Christianity... Uh, is all about Jesus. It, it's not just about morality. It's not just about uh, vague principles. Christianity is fundamentally about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if that's true, one of the cru crucial questions is, how do we gain access to Jesus when we've never physically seen Jesus, when we've just not been around him? That's one of the questions for Timothy's cohort in leadership. The, the, he's the first generation that has to really deal with this question, how do we gain access to Jesus? And given that Paul and his generation, they were dying off like crazy, it appears that maybe Christianity is going to die out with the last person who had known Jesus face to face. Now, can you feel the force of the problem there? How is Timothy going to have access to Jesus? How is he going to really grasp Jesus and know him? Well, keep that in your mind. 
And in your sheet, flip over to the gospel reading. That's the second reading. Because here's the deal. This problem of how do we really grasp Jesus? How do we really gain access to Jesus? It was a problem, a question, for the very, very first disciples. It wasn't even a problem for the first generation of Christians. Let me show you what I mean. So in the gospel reading, um, this is Jesus talking to his disciples the day that he rose from the dead. Now remember the situation. Jesus and the disciples have lived together for three years. Every single day, they've spent time together. Therefore, these first disciples, these first apostles, um, they've known Jesus very, very closely. They knew Jesus like Timothy knew Paul. However, here's the weird thing. Despite all that personal time with Jesus, they still didn't really grasp him. They saw Jesus physically for those three years, and in this day, they see Jesus physically risen from the dead. They know Jesus personally, but nevertheless, they still, even at this moment, they don't really grasp who he is, who he really is, why he had to die and what the significance of that is, and they, therefore, they really don't know what it means to follow him. It's a very strange thing. And so the question for them is, how are these disciples who have spent three years with Jesus, how are they, even they, who have had privileged access to Jesus, how are they going to really grasp who he is? They had a problem of access as well. Well, look back at the reading. There's a turning point. This is a crucial turning point in the history of all of Christianity. There's a turning point in verse 45. The disciples never really grasp Jesus despite having physical access to him. They don't really grasp Jesus until verse 45. Look at verse 45. What happens? Jesus opens their minds to understand what? To understand the scriptures. Now, this is very, very important. The penny doesn't drop for the very first disciples until they see Jesus in the scriptures, in the Bible, in their case, in the Old Testament. Now, keep that in your mind and bring it back to Timothy and Paul, so you can flip back over uh, to 2 Timothy. Paul picks up his pen and writes to Timothy. Paul knows he's going to die. What, is, what, is, what does a daddy talk to his child about when the daddy knows that he's dying? Paul picks up his pen, he writes to Timothy, and he says basically this, Timothy, remember you were raised with the scriptures. And Timothy, do you know what their real purpose was? All along, their real purpose. I mean, they do many, many things, but their real purpose, their real final aim, did you know this, Timothy? Their real aim was finally to bring you to trust Jesus Christ in his salvation. And it's as if Paul says, even those of us who were apostles, even the very first disciples of Jesus only really finally grasped Jesus' meaning when they saw him in the scriptures. As if Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you have those scriptures and you have had those scriptures, therefore cling to them. Timothy, I'm going to die, says Paul, but those scriptures aren't going to die. I'm not going to be with you anymore, but those scriptures are going to stay with you, and they will outlast even you, Timothy. And they, their purpose and their aim is that from generation to generation, each generation, 
can come to the scriptures, read them, and find Jesus Christ and come to trust him and know his salvation. So, I say all that to say this. What is the aim of the Bible? God gives us the Bible in order to give us himself. The aim of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is to make Jesus clear to us so that we can trust him and deeply, personally come to experience his salvation. That's the aim. Now, that begs the question, how does it possibly get that done? It's an old book. It's quite outdated, isn't it? How does it get that done? Well, look at verse 16. It says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay, now, I want you to focus on that image of scripture being breathed out by God. Everybody breathe in. Everybody breathe out. Feels quite good, doesn't it? Um, okay, what does it mean that the scriptures are breathed out by God? Well, the idea of breathing in the Bible, particularly God-breathing, is very often associated with the Holy Spirit. In fact, you can translate the Holy Spirit as holy breath, the holy breath of God. And what it means in this context is at least this, the Holy Spirit gives power to the Bible. I know this is an audacious claim. I, I know some of us are cautious. Stay with us. The, the Holy Spirit, so to speak, breathes out the Bible and gives it power in at least three ways. Let me go through them. First, when it says that God breathes out the scriptures, it means, firstly, that the Holy Spirit is the author underneath all the other authors of the Bible. Here's what I mean. The whole Bible uh, was written by humans. Not just one human. Um, it was written, I mean, there's 66 books. It's a bit like a library. It was written by lots of different human authors. We don't know all of who were involved in writing the Bible. Um, lots of authors, lots of editors. Um, and each of them wrote in uh, their own particular uh, historical moment. Uh, each of them wrote out of their own cultural context, and each of them wrote in their own particular language. There's a number of different languages that's written over the course of a long period of time. However, it's a very human book. However, verse 16 means that in a remarkable way, underneath those human authors, God was speaking. God was speaking through them. God the Holy Spirit was ensuring that the big themes of the Bible and the small details of the Bible work together in a wonderful harmony in order to communicate the precise truth God wants to communicate. It's an audacious claim, I know. The first thing that Scripture is breathed out by God means is that God is the author underneath all the other authors. But then here's the second thing it means. It means that the Holy Spirit, in breathing out the Bible, shows us God's character by pointing us to Jesus. Now, I know that's, that's a little bit... I didn't really follow you there. Well, let me try to explain this. Um, in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about... Um, he, he says that out of the heart a person speaks... And when he says that in that context, he, he's saying that, that your words, um, and he's talking about us, our words are a window into your character. So if I, um, speak, if I use my words to speak lies, 
it means you can, so to speak, look through those words, look through those lies, and see into my soul, and ends up I'm a, I'm a liar if I, if I use my words in that way. Words are a window to character. Um, on the other hand, if one uses their words uh, in, in love and in truth, then that also is a window into their deep character. Look through the words, you can see the character. Now, that applies to the Bible. When you think about God breathing out scripture, it's the idea that God breathes out these words and that through these words, you get to gaze into who God is and his deepest character. Okay, um, let's say it differently. The Bible, friends, is not a morality play. The Bible is not just a set of principles to live by. It's got plenty of morality and plenty of principles. But it's deeper than that. The Bible is not just a set of rules that want to squish you. The Bible is God saying, listen to what I say and you will see who I am. And this is very important. Um, sometimes uh, people say that Christian, the way Christians talk about God is just hopelessly arrogant. And I can kind of see their point. Um, partially because we're often just straight up arrogant. But... Also, um, because, you, you know, when, when we, we talk about God like we know him, and, and we believe we do, um, but that's kind of crazy because God's big. But by definition, God's big. If there is a God, God's big. And my brain's little. Um, so you put those two things together, and it's like, who in the world do you think you are to talk so confidently about God, right? Can you see that? It's the height of arrogance. And I can kind of see the point. It ends up, however... Um, that Christians actually believe something that is more humble than that and more bold than that at the very same time. We know, or at least we should know, that we can't grasp God. We could never figure God out. That would be crazy. But what we believe is that God, in his great power and deep love, God decided to disclose himself. Um, God, by his spirit, sort of, so to speak, opened himself up so that we could look into who he is in a way that we could never figure out on our own. And further, we believe that God opened himself up by telling us a story that culminates in Jesus Christ. And when you look at that story displayed in the Bible, you find a God that I, I don't think any of us would really expect. Um... I, I think I tend to think, I tend to expect a God uh, who demands that I stand on my own two feet. Um, I kind of expect a God who, uh, who, who says, listen, um, I'll, I'll engage with you uh, so long as you can stand on your own two feet and kind of perform up to what I, at least a minimum requirement. I don't know if that's what you expect of God, but, but when you come into this story, to our great surprise, God meets us precisely when we can't stand on our own two feet. God meets us in our poverty and in our failure and in our guilt. That's the only place that you can actually meet God. And it's strange because the God of our expectation usually is a God who either uh, rejects us because of our failure or indulges us in the midst of our failure and just sort of leaves us in it. But the God we meet in the Bible is different because God shows himself to us by pointing us to Jesus Christ. He points us, he says, look at Jesus Christ and you'll see who I am. 
And you see that God sends Jesus who, who takes our sin voluntarily upon himself. He doesn't indulge it, nor does he reject us because of it. He puts it upon himself and then dies under the penalty of it and then arises from the dead in order to arrange our adoption. It's a bonkers story. Is it not? Think of it this way. I want you, this, this is going to be weird too, but there's no, it's a weird story, so there's no way to say it other than weird. Imagine yourself at the bottom of a lake. Imagine that you did something stupid, we did something stupid, and here we are, we find ourselves at the bottom of a lake, and we're caught at the bottom of a lake, and we know it was our own folly that put us there, and therefore there's very little hope of rescue, and we're going to drown. And then we see God for the first time. And the first time we see God, the first real glimpse of God, is this image of Jesus Christ himself diving down into the water. And you see Jesus Christ straining and swimming down to you. And he comes down to you and he bypasses you and he goes straight for the thing that's holding you underwater. And he rips it open and he frees you and then he grabs you by the hand and he rips you out of the water. He throws you on the beach and there... You look at him, and you see God for the first time, and he's your rescuer. That's the unexpected story you find when you look at Jesus in the Bible. And then you find out that that's just the beginning. Because on the shore, you also see, some distance from you, God the Father. And Jesus picks you up, and he dries you off. And he takes off your clothes, and he clothes you in his own clothing. And then he walks you up to God the Father, and he says, Father, I have rescued this one from death. Will you now adopt this person to be your child? Now, is that the God that you would make up? That's the God who breathes out the Bible. Are you cautious about, are you, are you cautious about the Bible? Are you afraid that if you take the Bible seriously, you're going to find a God that's very, very cruel? Or maybe a God who asks you to be cruel? Friend, you do not have the capacity to anticipate the kindness you will find. Okay, what does breathed out by God mean? If the aim is to bring us to Jesus, where does the power come? Well, it means that the Spirit is the author underneath all the other authors. But then secondly, the Spirit through the Bible, shows us the very character of God by showing us the rescue of Christ. But then thirdly, the Spirit captivates our own hearts by the beauty of God the Father and God the Son. Um, you, you remember the Gospel reading, right? It says that Jesus opened up the disciples' minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. That was the turning point. And that's what the Holy Spirit does as we come and reread the Bible. So what happens is something like this. We read the Bible, and we take into it account its uh, historical context and the, and, and, and the language and what, all that's going on. But then also the Holy Spirit works in our minds so that we begin to see Jesus in increasing clarity. And then in looking at Jesus, we begin to see who God the Father is. But then there's more. Imagine you're back on that beach beside the lake. And imagine Jesus brings you to God the Father and he's changed your clothes 
and he's, and he's announced you to God the Father and saying, adopt this one, Father. Now, just imagine there that all of a sudden you look up and you, you glance into the Father's eyes, but then all of a sudden all your shame just triggers and you, and you just you want to cringe, you want to back away um, because you, you, can kind of, you can kind of take in the idea of being rescued, but adoption is just too intimate and you, you don't want to look at God. What happens is the Spirit breathed out by God through the Scriptures works inside you and enables you to listen to the Father speak. And in a variety of different ways, the Father says this. He says, I love you. Do you know why I love you? It's not because of anything you've done. I love you because my son rescued you. And I love you because my son has clothed you in his own clothes. I love you now as my adopted child, and I love you like I love him. And then the Spirit enables you to hear that message, and then the Spirit enables you to trust it. And you begin to receive that love, and then you find yourself breathing out love back to the Father. And that's where all the joy comes from. What I'm trying to say is that the Bible is not just a book of information about God. Don't get me wrong, it is that, but more. The Bible is how God draws us into the delight of real intimacy with him. What is it that comes to your mind when you think about the Bible? The Bible, God gives us the Bible so that God can give us himself. All right. Let me um, address a, a, a few people. Uh, first of all, those of us who are lukewarm about the Bible and haven't been listening to any of this, um, um, can I say, um, if you're lukewarm about the Bible, you're probably in the most dangerous category. God gives us the Bible in order to give us himself. And to be lukewarm about the Bible means you're lukewarm about God. To be lukewarm about God means you're lukewarm about the relationship that animates the universe. I beg you to wake up. You're in danger. Secondly, those of us who are cautious about the Bible. And, and caution can be really good. Um, because sometimes it means that you actually see that the stakes are high. Right? Um, if, I, if, if I may give some advice. If you're cautious about the Bible, there's two... Caution can you make you, do you do two things. It can make, make you timid, where you, you just kind of back away and you disengage from the thing that makes you nervous. On the other hand, caution can make you courageous. Caution can make you eyes wide open as you engage the thing that makes you nervous. Be cautious, but be courageously cautious. And what I mean by that is I encourage you to cautiously, eyes wide open and courageously open up the Bible, step toward the thing that frightens you, bring all of your concerns and your trouble and your background and all of that, look at Jesus as he presents himself in scripture and then engage in a kind of holy combat with Jesus. The reason I say holy combat is, do you remember the story of Jacob? You might not. Jacob, guy in the Old Testament, wrestled with God until God blessed him. We should too. 
wrestle with Jesus. Don't let him go. Bring all your issues. Bring it to him. Bring all the things that trouble with him. Don't let him go. Put it out there. Wrestle with him and get so close to him that you can smell his breath. Because what, you, what you're going to find, and I know this is a bold statement, what you're going to find is that Jesus breathes out a truth that will not deceive your soul, but will bring you to joy. Lastly, those of us who love the Bible, here's my simple question. Is it changing you? Everything in our reading, go back and read it. Everything in our reading, it says that the Bible is meant to train you for righteousness. Is that happening? Do not be satisfied with Bible knowledge. Do not be satisfied until the Bible, the, the Bible is imprinting your character with the character of God. God gave us the Bible so that he could give us himself. Receive it and receive him. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.